0: Hello, Welcome to the How Might We Podcast and Happy New Year. Whoever you are, I hope 2019 brings you a lot of joy, peace, happiness. I hope it's a great one. Um, for my part, I finished 2018 with a three-day silent meditation retreat. So I started 2019 feeling both pretty calm and pretty energized. Um, and that's that's the topic of today's episode, really. So in this episode, you're going to hear my conversation with Susanna Novaish. Uh, She's a neuroscientist, a mindfulness instructor, and a humanitarian ultramarathonist. Uh, She's a researcher at the Institute of Biophysics and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Lisbon. And here we discuss our, our common passion, really, for meditation and we look into some of the science supporting its benefits, particularly to the brain. So susannas that's where her expertise is, and she, she shares some, some really amazing stuff. Um, for my part, I, I first started trying out meditation about five years ago, shortly after a, a trip to India, uh, and actually the, the image that accompanies this week's episode is a picture that I took when visiting Dara Masala, which is where the Tibetan government is in exile, Um, And then two years later, I came across Vipassana meditation, which I I really credit with having helped me overcome depression, improve my relationship with my emotions, my relationships in general, for that matter. Uh, And more recently, I really think it's helped me with my work. Um, It's allowed me to focus far better, cut through complexity a lot easier, uh, and ultimately have a more balanced relationship with my work too, I think. So this one's a bit like episode two on alter- alternative education with Marcelo Valency, um, where you you can perhaps see it just as two passionate people really advertising the benefits of something that we really believe in, um, and supported by by a load of science that that backs up why why we believe in it so much. Um, so. It perhaps lacks some nuance, although you'll hear me at the beginning of the episode very lightly kind of interrogate some of the other practices that Susanna's has. Uh, I'm certainly quite skeptical of words like chi, um, but the benefits of meditation I, I have no doubt about and couldn't endorse more. Um, as As I said, it's really changed my life. So in this episode, we discuss a load of things. Um, from more philosophically, we, we discuss some of the transformative insights that can be gleaned from uh, meditation. Um, we'll, we'll also discuss the emotional and mental benefits such as memory, compassion, stress reduction, um, reduction in suffering. Uh, and, and we'll discuss a little bit, I think, quite interestingly about how suffering is different uh, from pain. Uh, And and for all of this, we'll discuss the corresponding changes that you see in the brain. Uh, And to to me, that's the really fascinating part. Um, So a lot of this is is a good guide to understanding meditation and to understanding uh, its effects on the brain. If you want to go deeper into this, I recommend two things. The first, I really recommend reading Altered Traits or sometimes called Science of Meditation by Richard Davidson and Daniel Goleman which has some great nuance, which, as I said, this, this episode maybe lacks, um, and, and is just amazing, world-leading research. I, I really, re- really recommend that. And, of course, I just recommend trying meditation out. If you're totally new to it, apps like Headspace or Calm are really great to get started. Uh, and if you've done it before and want to jump into it, I really recommend taking taking a course. I've done a 10-day silent before and now a 3-day one. along along with daily practice, and and it's it's had a huge effect. Um, Finally, I'd appreciate any support you can give to the podcast, which you can do in a number of ways. You can do that just by giving me feedback through my site, letting me know what you think, um, suggesting new guests. You can also sign up to my newsletter. You can share the episode on social media with your friends, or you can support it directly on Patreon. Which is on a monthly pay what you want basis. Um, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash John Barnes or visit my website, John Barnes, that's J O N B A R N E S dot me. So enjoy a great start to 2019 uh, with this episode, which I've entitled How Might We Build Our Brain with Meditation. Enjoy. Hello, Susanna.
1: Hi, John.
0: Hey, thanks for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: <laughs> no, this is, this is great. This is, uh, as, as you know, you, you and me have talked before about this. Meditation is one of the most important topics uh, in my life. So it's nice to talk to, to an expert. This should, this should be a fun conversation.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Um, so, I mean, so we're going to discuss, um, there'll, there'll be an intro to you before, before this, so I'll, I'll summarise everything there. Um, but we're going to talk about meditation, we're going to talk about the brain, we're going to talk about how one affects the other. Um, but perhaps before we go into all the, all the juicy science behind all of this like uh, spiritual la-la stuff. <laughs> um perhaps you you can start by by telling us uh what it is that you do and how how you came to do that
1: okay um so i'm a neuroscientist and um i'm very interested in consciousness i um do experiments with um humans and uh, we <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to rats or And uh, so we ask people to perform certain tasks while in the scanner. And we do magnetic resonance imaging uh, while people are performing those tasks. So it's called functional magnetic resonance imaging because people are functioning in the scanner. And those tasks can be as simple as just looking at stuff we're projecting on a screen inside the scanner or making complex decisions, like deciding which of the object doesn't fit in a group, or reading sentences that have some syntactic or semantic uh, mistake on purpose, and then um, interpreting the sentences. Other experiments include playing games in virtual reality, And this is what we're using now to study a cohort of uh, elderly people with Alzheimer's and uh, Mm -hmm. Parkinson's diseases. And then we we do these experiments uh, at several time points along a person's life. So it's called a longitudinal experiment. Let's say when they're 40 years old, 45, 50, and so on. And then uh, we see those who develop some kind of uh, dementia or neurodegenerative disease. We see how their behavior and their performance compares with the normal group of people. And then we make uh, computational models of the two kinds of brains, the healthy brain and the diseased brain. And we compare their structure and their functioning. And the idea is to then, because we have these tests and the performances at several points in time, the idea is then to go back in time, and we already have a lot of data because these kinds of experiments have been performed for a very long time. And now we're analyzing all this data and going back in time to a point where people did not manifest the disease, but the disease was already starting. And so we want to find what's called biomarkers that are signals or flags that can alert us that something is changing and this person is very probably going to develop a certain disease. And so if we can identify those biomarkers, then we can, uh, on a normal brain scan, an everyday brain scan, we can say that this person... Like 20 years down the road is going to have a certain disease so we can prevent it today. And that's the most important part of uh, medicine right now is preventive medicine. If we can detect that this person might become a demented patient uh, 10, 20 years from now, then we can start treating the disease before it evolves.
0: And so and how do you do that how do you so if you've if you've found out that a person has a high probability of getting that disease in twenty years' time let's say, mm-hmm. what are the strategies that you're that you're like testing or experimenting with to see if that group of people um, you know like can prevent can prevent the disease
1: so then uh the neuropharmacology uh, group comes in and um The treatment that is being provided to, um, let's say, Parkinson's patients uh, is related with the dopaminergic uh, system of the brain. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter, is um, a a hormone that uh, flows around in the brain. And um, there is something wrong with the dopamine system in people with Parkinson's. So they are being treated with something called L-DOPA that acts exactly on, the, on that system. So if we can start the treatment as soon as uh, the disease starts to manifest, then we can prevent the traumatic effects it might have later on.
0: Right. So is that, is that the equivalent So someone with depression can in some instances have a serotonin deficiency and they're given ser- serotonin like boosters? Mm-hmm. is this is this the same for dopamine in order to to resolve or or help people with parkinson's
1: yep yep that's exactly it
0: okay so that so that's the that's the neuroscientist side of you um but there's other mm-hmm. sides to you um yes. can you tell me tell us a little bit more about um meditation and and that role in your life and maybe the role of meditation in your work as well
2: mm-hmm.
1: so uh when I was sixteen Uh, I was extremely lucky Um, and I I moved to Macau with my parents. Macau used to be a Portuguese territory in Southeast Asia near Hong Kong. And um, it's now a part of China. And my parents were invited to work there. And uh, as a 16 year old, of course, I went along and it changed my life completely. I was always very curious since I was a little child. So I wanted to explore everything and learn everything I could and uh, it was just fascinating. As you can imagine, for a teenager to move to such an exotic place as Asia, uh, it was it was awesome. So I started uh, exploring the city and um, there were temples everywhere and beautiful gardens. So I would go in the temples and it was all very mysterious and very strange and very new to me. So I tried to understand as much as I could. And uh, so I started reading a lot. I read everything I could about Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism, so that I could understand what was going on in the temples, all the rituals and the statues and the smell of incense and everything. And um, I also went to the gardens a lot. They were very, very beautiful gardens. And I would see these elderly people uh, doing some strange movements, which then I understood to be Tai Chi. (laughs) <laughs> and kung, <laughs> and so I started talking to them. And uh, fortunately, I had a good friend, a Chinese girl, whose grandfather was one of the best Tai Chi masters in Macau. And uh, he became my, my master. And I learned Tai Chi and Qigong with him. And in, in a very short time, I had amazing changes in my life. I can tell you that in one month of an intensive Qigong course, my feet grew, my feet grew. All my shoes started being too small for me. I had to buy new new pairs of shoes because my feet actually grew. So this is not science fiction, It's, it's real. The effects of Qigong in your body and your mind are just amazing. And then
0: can, can, I, you take, can you take me a bit through that? Because I'm, I'm familiar, well, I'm, not, I'm a bit familiar with Tai Chi, not so much, and Qigong not, hardly at all, although I've, I've heard the word mentioned quite a lot, uh, sort of as a tangent to mindfulness.
1: Mm-hmm. So Qigong is, um, Qi is the vital energy uh, that flows in our body, according to, to Chinese traditional medicine, And when you practice Qigong, you are improving your qi. So improving the flow of energy in your body and eliminating the blockages and uh, all the bad stuff. And um, it consists basically of uh, sitting or standing still and uh, controlling your breathing with a very limited amount of movement. So I was standing still for maybe an hour and uh, my feet (laughs) were very solid on the on the ground and that's how they started to grow I guess <laughs>
0: <laughs> what's it just sorry I'm, I, I'll i be careful not to go through too many tangents but this is this is too rich an area to not go down um so when you <laughs> where, so this is interesting for me because I have a bias towards um towards not listening to words like qi and energy, or at least I, I start seeing them as metaphors, like ancient metaphors uh, for something else. Is, but you're, this is interesting because you both are a practitioner of qigong, but you're also a neuroscientist, so your biases will be less strong than mine. Can you tell me, when you talk about qi and energy, uh, like to a cynical scientist, what what are you talking about like is there a, is there a biological or chemical signature for what an ancient chinese tradition would call chi oh
1: uh, yes um so the qi, they they have uh, i'm sure you've seen the meridians of acupuncture mm-hmm. there are it's when I, when I started doing my PhD, I looked at the nervous system and I looked at the meridians because I've always wanted to make this parallel be- between neuroscience and Buddhism. And I said, oh my God, they look so similar. So there are some meridians in your body through which energy flows. And um, for instance, if you have a certain disease, you go to a Chinese doctor, he feels your, your pulse with three fingers and then diagnoses you it's it's just amazing i i had this experience in china and he would say something like there is something wrong with your meridians between the kidneys and the lungs for instance and then he would treat you for that and uh, this can explain something like depression or a skin rash or something like that
0: so are you saying that those meridians um uh, in western is in Western science or medicine those are those are nerve n- like nerves or, or something
1: yeah yeah okay and um, and the thing is there is obviously we we have energy in our bodies and we just need to know how to use it and how to channel it and just like depression can be seen as a mental blockage other diseases can be seen as uh, blockages of chi or energy and qigong just releases and cultivates that chi and it it gives you a strength and an energy that is hard to explain really mm-hmm. in words
0: yeah yeah and say so, so, cuz actually with depression um i often like semi semi joke or or provoke or whatever by saying that it's it's seen as a mental health issue but it can also be seen as an enteric issue
2: oh, that definitely. it comes
0: that it comes from the gut and is that am i right that's the vagus nerve
2: mm-hmm,
1: exactly
0: and it, does that correspond to a meridian in chinese medicine the vagus the vagus nerve
1: oh yes yes okay. and it's it's a very important one okay
0: all right, cool. So, so, so you got so you got into Qigong. You got these these massive hobbit feet. Uh, what 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 next?
1: Uh, I am a proud wearer of a forty four size shoe. Okay, <laughs> not, not normal for a woman. Okay, <laughs> uh, and uh, and then we also we were also talking about Tai Chi. So Tai Chi is um the same kind of uh thought process it's the same kind of thing but in movement tai chi is like a slow uh, martial art with very very slow movements and uh, it's very good for your health for your joints uh, especially for old people who cannot do for instance they cannot do karate but they can do tai chi it's very slow movements where you so first you cultivate the chi with the breathing and the chi kong, and then you put it into action with tai chi. And it's very beautiful. The slow movements. They can be done also with um, with a sword. It's called tai chi Chen, which is uh, very very interesting. Like the the Shaolin monks used mm-hmm. to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I used to do that in the um, in the gardens. It's usually pre- it's better than outdoors. Uh, Old people usually go very early in the morning, at 5 or 6 in the morning. It's better done in the early hours in the morning in contact with nature. And uh, it just keeps them healthy and alive with their chi flowing and their joints working well.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so Tai Tai Chi and Qigong were two of the the two early things that you discovered. This is around the age of 16 in Macau, right? Okay.
1: And yoga as well. I had a very good Indian master who also opened my horizons a lot. And I, I started understanding the connections between yoga and Tai Chi and the brain. So it all, it all started um, um, just sparkling my curiosity even more so that uh, this would happen later in life, trying to relate everything with, with the brain.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, you're trying to put everything, the, the brain's the model by which you're you're making sense of these different ancient traditions. Is that exactly. right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, so you so so take it to so carry on through your through your journey here.
1: So um, then I was a teenager, as I mentioned, when I was living in Macau, and then I had to come back to Portugal to go to the university. And, but, you know, the as I call it, the Asian bug was there. So when I came back to Portugal, I started studying Chinese. I, I learned some Chinese while in Macau, uh, Cantonese, that's what's spoken there. Uh, but then when I came back to, to Lisbon, I, I joined the Mandarin course and I studied Mandarin for, for four years. And um, then... I I had to go to China again to improve my Chinese because, you know, it's always better if you're immersed in the culture. So I was in Beijing for a month for an intensive summer course. And I loved it so much when I came back. The first thing I told my parents in the year was next year when I graduate from university, I'll go for a full year. And so I did. I went to Shanghai for a year and I I did a whole year of uh, Chinese language and culture at university, which was the equivalent of the last year of the, um, the master's degree. So I, I graduated from there as well. And then um, I went to London, because I, you know, I thought, okay, now I have a good knowledge of Chinese, now I should go back to science. I went to London, I did my master's at Imperial College. I did the master's in um, engineering and physical science in medicine. And that's when really my, my brain studies started seriously. And then I worked in Cambridge for a while in the Human Genome Project. And then finally I, I moved to Philly, Philadelphia in 2001 for my PhD in neuroscience.
0: And, and is, it, is that when you started studying neuroscience and meditation and their relationship then in Philadelphia?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I did it by myself because uh, there was no course about it. It was, it, it was just my own personal interest in my research. So I would go to the. There were wonderful libraries at university, and I would go to the library of philosophy or theology, and I would study everything I could about the philosophy of mind and theories of mind and ancient. Um, philosophies and religions. And I started, you know, trying to put together all the pieces of this very complex puzzle that seemed to be totally unrelated to somebody else. But for me, it made total sense. And then I, in my my PhD thesis, I studied how we can uh, pay attention and monitor conflicts and uh, solve complex tasks. Um, sh- very, very shortly. That's uh, what I did. I used um, functional magnetic resonance imaging. And so now it's very funny that I, I study meditation and meditation, mindfulness meditation helps pay attention and observe your thoughts and control your thoughts. And uh, so I, I go back and I'm like, okay, this is exactly what I did for my thesis, how you can control your attention, how you can pay attention or not to distractors, how you can avoid distractors, and how the brain signals uh, all the conflicts that uh, go on when you're performing a certain task that is cognitively
0: complex. And when you say conflict, do you mean conflict between two people?
1: Um, No, I mean conflict in terms of um, um, stimuli or uh, computation computations going on in the brain for instance if i i i start telling you a sentence or a story and you start imagining that it's going to go a certain way but then something happens and it doesn't go as you expected so Mm. you have to go back and uh, reparse the sentence or reinterpret the story so there's like this uh an uncertainty and then there's something like oops it's not what I was thinking. And then you go back and um, start again your, your thought process. So that's okay. the, the aha moment, the moment where you discover that there is a conflict between what you thought was going to happen and what is really going to happen. And the brain is very good at signaling that. There is an area of the brain that's called, that's called the anterior cingulate cortex that is like flags that, that event, says, oops, There's a conflict here, it's not going to go as you expected. And um, so then the prefrontal cortex helps reorganize your thoughts, basically. And that's exactly what happens with meditation. You're uh, thinking of something or observing your thoughts, and then another thought comes in to distract you from what you're thinking about. And the cingulate goes like, oops, there's a conflict. Something's going on. Mm. So it's it's very funny. It's, it's all these coincidences that are not coincidences at all, I'm sure, in my life. Things happen for a reason, and it keeps happening again. It's like, oh, I've seen this before. Oh, now I understand it.
0: So okay. Very, yeah, very, so very it, it's, it sounds like... Uh... If I summarise, it sounds to me like your subjective experience from from the, the different practices in your life, particularly as a teenager or in your twenties, um, you then saw them uh, somehow like objectively, uh, like qualifiable through through neuroscience. Yeah, um, is that right?
2: Yeah,
0: perfect. And, and so, and so tell me a bit more about meditation cause, and what type of meditation, maybe tell us a bit about your practice um, and then we can go into some of the, the kind of scientific findings um, behind that. But first, maybe t- tell, tell our listeners a bit more about meditation, what it is, what it isn't. And I'm, in, I'm interested in your own personal practice, how you, how you came about it and, and that kind of stuff.
1: Okay, so, um, as I mentioned, I started meditating when I was 16, which was a long time ago. And then, um, recently, uh, I started reading a lot about mindfulness, mindfulness meditation. And then I found some uh, scientific papers about mindfulness and the effects of mindfulness on the brain. And I thought, okay, I've got to study this. <laughs> And um, in 2016, the first course uh, happened in Portugal, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction course. It is um, an eight-week program developed by John Kabat-Zinn, who is an emeritus professor at Harvard Medical School. And um, he, was, he spent a part of his life in Asia, and uh, he brought that program to the West and uh, made some changes to it uh adapted it to the Western lifestyle. So it's, uh, it, he just removed the religious part of the meditation. So it's not a Buddhist practice, it's a meditation practice. And uh, so the first time um, in Portugal was in 2016, and I said, okay, I've got to be the first one again. Let's do this. So I did um, MBSR course, but I did intensive version in one week only. And I followed it immediately by a a one-week-long silence retreat, which was one of the prerequisites for the course I did later, which was to become a teacher of of mindfulness-based stress reduction. And um, it was during that course that it really just clicked. And I was like, gee, this is exactly what I've been doing all my life. So mindfulness is... Just what I was started doing when I was 16 in Macau, it's paying attention and um, being right here, right now, as um, Zen Buddhist, Buddhism says, it's uh, paying attention to, to, to the moment and not dwelling in the past or being anxious about the future. So mindfulness can be defined as uh, the, the consciousness that emerges when you are paying attention on purpose to the present moment and non-judgmentally to the unfolding of the experience. So it is three three words are important: is attention, intention, and mm-hmm. attitude. Paying attention with intention and with a non-judgmental attitude. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, and when you say that you did this, uh, you did the silent retreat after the um, stress reduction mm-hmm. um, program, was that um, my just because you said it's a week that my assumption is that the goenka tradition, uh, like of vipassana meditation, or is that a different thing?
1: Well, um, in this silence retreat is just, and I, I especially. Like that I did it just after the the course because I could just reflect about everything that I had learned the the previous week. You just, you know, it was in a very nice place in the woods, there's basically nothing. Um, I mean, they don't take your cell phone away, it's up to you if you want to use it or not, so you know, if you're honest, use it, that's what I did. And you're just by yourself. It's a big enough place for, you know, everyone to be alone with your thoughts. And um, in case of needs, of course, the the teacher is there, the master is there. You can always talk to them. And uh, you have a period of about half an hour per day in which you can go and approach the master and ask questions or just ask him for some guidance in case of needs. And... Um, it's something I really recommend to everyone because you're so in touch with your inner self. You can process so much stuff. All that stuff that you're afraid to, you know, to even approach uh, normally. You know, the, the sticky stuff that you try to avoid. Then you <laughs> have to deal with it. Mm. and there's nothing better than dealing with a problem avoiding it is not the solution you have to deal with it and solve it and uh, so that you can go on with your
0: life Well, yeah i mean maybe tell us some of the so i've so i've done one 10 day silent retreat uh which was the goenka tradition so they do take away your cell phones and books and even Mm -hmm. even pen and paper Mm -hmm. Um, i mean they don't force you obviously it's for you to voluntarily give it Mm -hmm. in um, but I, I had some insights that, you know, have, have like just fundamentally changed my life since really, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if you had, if you had any, any such moments and I know a lot of people don't cause there's like the suddenest view where you, where you have sudden transformations in the way you, you experience the world. And then there's the more gradualist view, right? Which I think a lot of neuroscientists, um, seem to look at because they look at how, how the the brain is changing physically over the number of hours that you meditate.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we'll go into that some of that after, but may, maybe first, just tell tell us a little bit about any any insights that that you had in those in those silent seven seven to ten days.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I had a lot of them, and I had both both things you were talking about insights right there and then, and then other. Uh, changes that occurred along the time. So it's like I planted the seeds then and then it started growing later on. Mm. But I I clearly remember just walking through the woods and suddenly I go like, oh my God, oh, this is it. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's like, you know, I almost felt my brain changing. And I'm like, oh, why didn't I think about this before? And since then, a lot of such moments have happened to me. It's amazing mm. how you can start explaining stuff in your life and that it was just lingering there and uh, you had no words for it. You, you, you couldn't even explain it. And now it's just so clear. It's amazing.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I, I see this sudden thing as a software update. So that, that you know, when the software up is updated on your phone, you have a new phone, it just works better and differently. And then the gradualist view is like a hardware update where where over time, over time there's lots of little shifts to your to your hardware uh, that are that are maybe more like going to the gym, like you you see that it feels different to be you. And um, the the insight I had a few, but I had one particular insight. Um on the course I did, which was in Yosemite National Park, uh, years ago now, maybe four years ago. And I, um, I had this moment where I was in the meditation hall, we must have been silent for four days, meditating about 10 hours a day. And I just remember having this hour where I felt so overwhelmed by thoughts and feelings. And I felt claustrophobic, there were so many people around me. Um, And so I left the room almost, you know, just really angry, basically. And I went on walks, like stomping in the woods. And then at some point I stopped walking. I was on my own and then stopped because it was too noisy. And I decided to just like check in with where I was and listen. And all I could hear was leaves and birds. And then I was like, wait a minute, what was the noise? What was that like crazy Mm -hmm. storm? And I was like, you know, shit, this, this is totally made up in my head. And I basically realized that over the course of four days, I had just been having fictional arguments with friends and family and old colleagues uh, nonstop. And all of that was, was a work of fiction in my mind uh, that didn't exist. That all of my suffering was, was totally made up by me and unnecessary. And I could just stop right now.
1: Yeah.
0: And, <laughs> um, I... Those are the kind of experiences that happen through that silence, I think.
1: I, I can totally understand. And I'm sure that's, and that's what I keep telling people. Uh, people's minds are too noisy. Just, people just don't realize it. And the problems are all in their heads. They, they just make the problems, even if there are no problems. They will make one. And they yeah, make yeah. a lot of noise. People generate a lot of noise. When I'm by myself, like if I'm alone at home, I, I just want to be in silence. I open the windows and i'm just like in silence listening to the birds because there's so much noise out there the cars and everything and you know all the distractions that we have now it's with technology all the notifications and the banners and the messages and everything it's just overwhelming to our attention system so if you can whenever you can just be silenced because people are scared i know people most people need company. They, as soon as they go home, they turn on the TV or they turn on the radio. They need to, be, to, be stim, to, to have stimuli around them all the time. They are afraid of silence. They're afraid of being with themselves. But silence, as I usually say, silence isn't empty. Silence is full of answers. You need to be in silence to allow your brain to find those answers. You need to be in silence to enable those answers, to emerge from the depths of the noise and the confusion that is in your mind. So that doesn't really scare me. You can hear a lot of noise and it's all in your head. It doesn't doesn't surprise me at all. It's, uh, I can totally believe you because people make a lot of internal noise
0: yeah yeah i do i I certainly do all the time (laughs) it's a it's a long a long path to to quieting it
1: yeah the beautiful thing with mindfulness meditation is that the more you train your mind so it's of, of course it's not easy of course it's not easy in the beginning it takes practice like everything in life like you know you don't become a marathon runner overnight so you don't become an expert meditator overnight but the more you practice, the more able you are to train your mind exactly to observe and recognize those thoughts as soon as they arrive. So when, you, when that internal chatter you were talking about starts to happen, you start hearing those, those arguments in your mind. You can go like, oops, no, I don't want to go there. Okay, mm. I recognize you. You welcome those thoughts with gratitude. You don't impose any resistance. You let them come. You welcome them. You acknowledge them. You say, okay, I know you're here. Thank you very much. Now, can you please go? Let them go because that's not you. You are not your thoughts. They come to your mind. And as they come, they can go as well. It's just like the sky is there. If it's cloudy, it doesn't go away. The sky is still there. You just have to let the clouds pass and the sky will be there again. So your brain is like the sky. There sometimes there are some dark clouds, and some storm and rain, and you recognize them and you say, "Okay, thank you for coming. Now please go and let me let my mind be clear again." And mm. uh,
0: you, you used a sentence there, which I think is important to, to touch on this idea. There's this insight that a lot of people have through mindfulness that is essentially you're under no obligation to believe your thoughts. Um, and that, that, I think, is quite a transformative one. And recently I've been reflecting on it. And perhaps this is where your, your two lives come in, your, your scientist and your, your sort of spiritual practitioner. Um, that My sense is that the, this insight is the thing that unites them both because it's about the truth. Both, I, I think that both uh, sort of deeply spiritual people or deeply scientific people both have um, a real quest to understand the truth. Um, and most of the time, we're tricked by our thoughts into believing that they are the truth. Um, but typically, because they're judgments or they're filtering reality, objective reality somehow, mm-hmm. um, our thoughts are, are not necessarily the truth. And the moment we are able to notice first of all that we're thinking and then to question whether that thought is in fact true or not true and whether we want to believe it or not. This, this seems like a a moment of, of real insight for a lot of people. I don't know if you've had that experience.
1: Exactly. I can totally relate to that. And I totally agree with you. It's like, um, we're in the age of fake news. So we cannot trust everything we see on TV or read on the internet. The same with our brains. Sometimes it likes to generate fake news. We cannot believe everything it's telling us. And uh, we are not our thoughts. We should not, identify, we should not identify with our emotions or our ego. That's what Buddhism says. Um, mm. The self and the ego are two very different things. And most people have a hard time understanding it because in Buddhist meditation, we, we cultivate the self, not the ego. And so we should we, when we feel a certain emotion arising, let's say anger, we can see it and feel it arise in our body and in our brain, but we are not the anger. We have a feeling of anger. So the same thing with our thoughts. We are not that thought. We have that thought. And as it came, it can go. And we should not obsess over thoughts. That's what happens with depression. Uh, People tend to go in a a downward spiral into into darkness. It's like a black hole. They have these ruminating thoughts that they keep feeding and they get bigger and bigger and bigger like a snowball. They start growing. The more you feed them, the more attention you you put into them, the bigger they will grow and um, the more... Uh, incapacitating they will become. So if you trust them, if you if you think, oh, I'm useless, I'm useless, oh, I'm so useless, oh yeah, everybody says that I'm useless, yeah, I must be useless, oh, I'm so useless. It just you know it just makes you crazy. You cannot say that to yourself. You sh- and with mindfulness you can listen to yourself saying that and stop it and say, no, I'm not useless. This is just some stupid idea that came into my mind. So mm. let me stop thinking
0: this yeah you can say that's i'm not useless that was just a thought it's not my thought it's not me it's just a thought yeah Uh, uh, i I sometimes like can try to compare it to actual works of fiction like novels and and you know i i almost pretend in my mind that a a fictional novelist wrote that thought and gave it to me but i'm under no obligation you know i don't believe that gandalf is real and i don't have to believe that this thought is real either (laughs)
1: you put it very well because you know in mindfulness you are um instructed to be an observer of yourself so you should take the third person perspective you are an observer of your thoughts you are an observer of your emotions and that's exactly as you put it it's like you're reading a novel it's like you're reading about somebody else's life and the same thing with with our thoughts we are observing oh i see this thought is coming Mm. You don't yeah. identify, we don't, you don't grasp it. You and just...
0: that, that objective point of view, that third person perspective is the thing that I think makes mindfulness pati- particularly um, deeply scientific. The other thing that makes it deeply scientific is that uh, my assumption, you can, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong here, but the fact that meditation can be done sitting or lying down makes it easier to test your brain in a scanner <laughs> whilst, whilst you're doing it. And so we've had plenty of good studies that show its impact i'm wondering, i'm thinking we should go into some of the different um impacts you've seen of mindfulness meditation on on the brain particularly but on on life in general
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, could you could you take us through some of that so some of the research that you know of um that can give can give us some some understanding of what is really happening to the mind of somebody who's meditated Uh, Lots and what what differences you've seen between practitioners and non-practitioners of meditation?
1: Sure, with pleasure. So uh, mindfulness meditation has three basic components. The first one is attention control. The second one is emotion regulation. And the third one is uh, self-awareness. So when you practice mindfulness, you are better able to control your attention you are better able to regulate your emotions, and you also develop more awareness of yourself and also of others and of what surrounds you. And the very interesting thing is that the brain is, uh, has several parts which are associated with certain tasks. Mm. And the attention system of the brain um, is improved inexperienced meditators so the areas of the brain that are responsible for you to pay attention are increased in meditators and for what, instance, what area is that as I mentioned um, the anterior cingulate cortex which is uh, more or less in the middle of your brain behind the, the, the part the frontal part of your brain it increases and gets thicker the cortical thickness um, Increases in experienced meditators. So it's the part that, as I mentioned previously, allows you to detect those conflicts of uh, thoughts or of uh, stimuli. And the prefrontal cortex, which is uh, the most uh, cognitively highly cognitive part of our brains, uh, is able then to solve that conflict. It's the part of the brain that is responsible for planning and uh, conflict solving and um, managing complex uh, decisions. So Mm -hmm. um, not only the structure of the brain changes, also the connections between brain areas get improved. So um, the cingulate, as I mentioned, also the hippocampus. People talk about the hippocampus a lot because it's uh, very associated with memory. And uh, in Alzheimer's patients, it's an area that starts losing cells. So there are studies that compare meditators with non-meditators. And we see that after a certain age, the, the number of cells in the hippocampus and other memory parts of the brain uh, starts decreasing. There's a, a cognitive decline with age. In experienced meditators, not only there is no decline, that can sometimes even be an increase in, in brain cells when they're 60 or 70 or 80 years old. They have more cells than they used to have when they were younger because they started meditating. Mm. And um, on the other hand, we have uh, the amygdala, for instance, which is a a part of the brain that is responsible for the processing of uh, negative emotions, such as fear and anxiety. And people with very stressful lives have uh, larger amygdalas than average.
0: Well, I mean, I'm assuming that if you have a stressful life, you are training your amygdala.
1: Yes, and uh, you're feeding it more and more, so it starts growing more and more. And uh, its connection to the frontal part of the brain is also stronger. So you, you react very, very fast to negative stimuli, with, uh, very impulsively. Uh, for instance, in uh, patients of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, their amygdalas are much bigger. So if you meditate for a long time, your amygdala start to shrink. And also the connection of the amygdala to other parts of the brain is also decreased. They start losing strength. So that means that you are less reactive to fear and uh, you can channel the reaction to another part of the brain. So instead of, of reacting, you have a different kind of response. And mindfulness helps you exactly with that after the stimulus there is usually a reaction so action reaction like in physics right mm. so mindfulness helps you instead of reacting responding so you don't react react is something like almost subconscious it's instant you don't react it's mindfulness helps you increase the gap even if it's it's not temporally it's emotionally it lets let you increase that gap between the stimulus and the response. And instead of reacting, you respond, which is something really, really beautiful. And as, you know, metaphorically for actually how the brain works.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I'd, I'd add that the my feeling, again, please correct me if I'm getting some of this wrong, is that when, is that you're able, where well, you describe, describe reactiveness and responsiveness, one way of seeing that difference is that reactiveness is that you're believing the emotion of fear as true, and responsiveness might be that you observe the feeling of fear as just a feeling, and now you can objectively analyze the risk or the danger of the situation um, so so for instance, uh, you get a notification on your phone it's possible to go into overdrive and start set, responding and sending all sorts of reactions to people purely because. Your amygdala's hijacked you in that in that situation, where in fact, through mindfulness, you can learn to observe that that notification made you feel a certain way, and you can think your way through the the, the problem and go. Actually, there's no real danger here. There's no real risk. Uh, I can take a different course of action.
1: Exactly. That's that's a very good way to put it. Um, our brains are wired to respond to negative stimuli because, because of the question of survival. I mean, we, if we didn't have this possibility of having fear, we would have been extinct for a long time. But nowadays, when you walk on the street or when you're looking at your cell phone, you're not in danger of being attacked by a, a saber-toothed tiger. So you can take some distance and um, actually process what's going on The thing is, we have to train our brains because, you know, genetically, we are wired for that. We are wired to run away from danger. We are wired to have fear and to to fight. It's the fight-or-flight response. Mm. uh, Yes,
0: you're you're responding to an email like you would to a saber-toothed tiger.
1: Exactly. So you have to train your brain and say, come on, it's not that dangerous. It's not a question of life or death. But usually we tend to... Pay more attention to negative stuff seven times more attention to negative stuff mm. so you need on average seven times more good events in your life than bad events in your daily life so that you can in balance, say oh it was a good day but most right. people just focus on the bad things imagine you have a wonderful day and then at the end of the day you go back home and uh you meet a neighbor that you don't like and you 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 have to talk to him and you go, oh man, oh, he's just destroyed my day. Oh, oh it's just a terrible day. <laughs> no, it was just one small event at the end of a beautiful day. Just people tend to think and there you go. And you ruminate over that, that negative stuff.
0: Yeah, and that, that negativity bias, um, that that famous number you cited there of seven times more information. Uh, the The news obviously plays on that Uh, extortionately and 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 only shares shares negative news or predominantly but but I'd say on top of that there's an absence and presence thing like the I one one way of thinking of it is that you hear about plane crashes in the news but you don't hear about the absence of plane crashes
2: exactly
0: Um, and there are there are many many non-plane crashes every day <laughs> but, <laughs> but our amygdala reacts disproportionately to the presence of a plane crash than to the absence of so many plane crashes yeah. so just, just to rebalance the conversation though the amygdala uh we tend to overreact to to fear because of uh, highly developed amygdalas um it's it's obviously useful to still have fear like if you're at the top of a cliff it's useful to have a bit of fear um, there. Um, what What other roles do the, does the amygdala play?
1: Uh, it's mostly fear and anxiety.
0: Okay. So, where, so I, I, was, I thought that um, the ability to empathize or be compassionate, where where do they come in?
1: Well, that's um, something called the mirror neurons.
0: Okay. A mirror
1: as if you're looking in a mirror. Mm-hmm. And uh, these neurons were discovered a while ago with experiments with monkeys that tend to, to mimic what people are doing. If you're sitting in front of a monkey and you pick up a mug and start drinking from a mug, the monkey will tend to do the same. And uh, we have an expression in Portuguese that is imitação." Uh, de It's like the monkey that imitates. <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
1: <laughs> and uh, it's funny because... Um, it's exactly that. And that's what helps us uh, socially. And it was uh, discovered that uh, autistic people uh, have much less mirror neurons than uh, normal people. That's why they have difficult time uh, interpreting what other people are thinking and interpreting other people's emotions and connecting socially and even making eye contact and uh, just mimicking their, um, their movements and their behavior.
0: Mm. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, and so we're we're all monkeys to some to some degree. I mean, to quite a big degree, but, but we yeah. also have these mirror neurons. That...
1: We are very similar genetically. Are very similar to monkeys. More than ninety nine percent of our genes are like the monkeys.
0: And so, tell the, tel- uh, the mirror the mirror neurons. That's something. Just connecting it back to meditation. Um, does mindfulness help with that uh, that like development of compassion and empathy, or is that uh, from from other practices
1: definitely mindfulness helps and um, there is a, a Buddhist belief that we are all wired uh, for goodness we are we have this basic innate goodness and um, if you if you look at a baby and a small child they're they're good. They're they 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 are the, the personification of goods. I mean, there is no evil in in a baby. Just society makes some people become evil. And with with the mindfulness, we can connect to that basic innate goodness and uh, and develop it and expand it. And when when we are meditating, we are thinking of good things not only for ourselves but only but also for others it's the bhavana meditation the loving kindness meditation when you expand your consciousness and you desire when you you wish that everybody is healthy and happy and peaceful and the more you do that the the more compassionate you become the more altruistic you become and you can see that in your in your life i mean i'm I'm always thinking of others and I'm always trying to help others and I go out of my way to help other people because it's just how I've always been like that, but I've become more aware of that and I do it even more now Mm, because
0: because of the practice.
1: Yes. Yes. Without any question. It just Mm -hmm. makes you a better person.
0: That's a, that's a pretty big um, benefit to advertise. Um, yeah, can you take us through some more of them? So we've looked at the, um, the amygdala shrinking and, its weaken, and and the weakening of its connections to the prefrontal cortex. that was about stress and fear. Um, we've looked a little bit at compassion uh, and empathy developing through Metabhavna meditation. Uh, you've mentioned the slowing or even reversal. Of um, like a, a decline in the hippocampus, which is memory. Well, what what else? What else can we put on the the long list of benefits um, that have some sort of neurological correlate um, to to explain to people?
1: Well, I can also talk about uh, my personal experience with uh, with sports.
0: Mm, yeah, please. <laughs>
1: A while ago, in the U.S., um, this famous NBA coach Phil Jackson brought mindfulness meditation into into the the world of sports, and uh, he was uh, champion for many many years in a row. And he would uh, teach his athletes to meditate, and uh, it was I've seen videos, and it's just beautiful to see those. Like two-meter giants just sitting still and meditating with their eyes closed—it's uh, it's really heartwarming. And the, <laughs> the thing is, have you, have you been to see them? Uh, I've seen uh, when I lived in the U.S. I went to some NBA games. Yes, wow, cool. I, I like basketball a lot. Cool, cool. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing is, because it develops your attention control, it helps you focus. And it helps develop that state of flow um, that mm. athletes call to be in the zone when you're so concentrated that, you know, it, you lose notion of space and time. And it's like you're moving in slow motion. You're so, so focused. You lose track of everything else. You're just very, very concentrated in what you're doing. And that can happen In sports or in uh, when you're playing music, if you're doing something that you really like and you're very concentrated, you are in the zone. You are in this flow state. That was um, first described by a Hungarian psychologist, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because of, uh, like, I think most... My assumption, I might be wrong, is that most people come to mindfulness now as a as a cure to something like depression um you mentioned preventative medicine but here you're talking about optimization for for these these big friendly giants right
1: exactly Mm -hmm. and um it's it helps you first of all uh be more focused state of mind be calmer before the practices before the games and after practice it also helps decrease injuries because it helps you process it's it's almost like you're processing what your body has just done and you're putting everything in place and uh, like you're improving your um, cell memory of what happened so you're you take you have more benefit from the practice if you meditate also after practice and you decrease the injuries because it helps the chi flow and and helps the the lactic acids get out of the body
0: so what are you you saying there that meditation after physical practice like what's it doing it's it's giving is it putting the mind's attention to the body and therefore the body is is better able to regenerate or i've not heard this before so I'm, i'm interested to understand this
1: is this is pretty new stuff uh yes it helps the body regenerate and get rid of the lactic acid which uh, if you know if it stays in the body it can uh, uh, trigger some injuries and also it helps the body uh memorize what it has done let's say if you're a pianist you have to practice and practice and practice and practice until you know you become perfect at uh, a certain piece Mm. and if you meditate before of course you're more concentrated and also if you meditate afterwards it's like your your body is memorizing it's like the the muscular memory of your of your fingers is uh is developed if you meditate also after the practice
0: Mm -hmm. And, and for these kind of uh for people listening, because there'll be people listening who are perhaps experienced meditators, I'd assume that to be a minority, maybe some who use something like Headspace, and then there'll be many listening who don't meditate at all. How how much meditation do you need to start seeing an increase? And how much do you need to start seeing a big increase or a big change in your life?
1: The good news is that you don't need a lot of meditation to start seeing benefits. Uh, If you do the eight-week program, the mindfulness-based stress reduction program, um, you can see changes after eight weeks only. Is that something
0: you can do through an app, or is that something you have to you have to be there to do it?
1: Uh, You have to be there. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you can read the. I read the book before taking the course, and when I because these courses are not cheap, I should say it's. it's, they are a bit expensive so i when i decided to do the course uh, as i was uh, i was getting there the first day i was like was this a good idea i read the book this is expensive was it did should i just have stick to the book and then as soon as it started i was like mm, no, no it's not the same no i'm so glad i came mm. you can immediately start of course you need a good teacher you need a certified teacher Unfortunately, there are many so-called teachers around who should not be teaching because they are not qualified. You need a lot of practice. You need years of practice before you can teach. You cannot just do a, a short course and start teaching the next day because you need to embody the the mindfulness spirit and you need to embody all the values on which it is based which are buddhist values like compassion and gratitude and humility you need to embody this i've been doing this for almost 30 years so it just pains me to see people who have no idea of what they're doing and they are teaching other people how to meditate so that's that's not a,
0: a good practice. so ju- just whilst we're on that so 30 years can you can you oh, tell us a bit more mm-hmm. about your stats because i know that um I, I like the idea of stats for meditation because it sounds so um ironic uh which make, makes it slightly funny but there's uh, there's I, I know that this the the studies show that um that the studies are often done by lifetime accumulation of hours meditating right right so I'm curious I'm curious what what your stats are here
1: uh well <laughs> I don't have a number um I can tell you that um Usually, uh, experienced meditators are uh, those who have at least 10,000 hours of meditation, mm. and uh, very experienced meditators, at least 30,000, sometimes 50,000. It depends on the studies.
0: But then, well, then when you're looking at 30 and 50,000, I mean, you're talking a monk there, right?
1: Yes, yes, people yeah. who, you know, meditate at least eight hours a day.
0: And what, what about for, for uh, uh, like, you know, people who have jobs and families and uh, are in, like, capitalist society? What, uh, what's an experienced meditator look like who's still living within that context?
1: Well, um, I, I always meditate... At least, like, just meditation, at least an hour a day. But I meditate all the time. I, people ask me how many hours. I, I cannot tell because I'm always meditating. I, well, When I'm swimming, I swim at least two hours a day or I run two hours a day. I'm meditating when I'm, when I'm practicing because I'm focused. I meditate before practice, I meditate during practice, and I meditate after practice. Um, Well, and swimming
0: because of the breath, the role of the breath has such a lovely parallel Mm -hmm. with mindfulness, right?
1: Exactly. That's what I tell my my fellow swimmers focusing on the breath and paying attention to your body. Isn't that what we're doing in the water all the time? Mm, Yeah, of course. (laughs) So I tell them, you have no excuse not to meditate.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they could be doing it all all the time they're in there.
1: Exactly. And, uh, but in the, as you say, how, a regular person can meditate. People complain a lot about the traffic and about the commute time. Why don't they use that time to meditate? I mean, I see see people on the subway doing nothing or just playing with their cell phones. Why don't they meditate? If they spend half an hour or one hour commuting to work and then another hour to commute back home, that's two hours you can meditate. Can you imagine how much benefit your brain could have if you were meditating for those two hours. Mm. People just lose that usually uh, uh, like 10 years ago, you go, you would go on the subway and people would be reading the newspaper or books. Nowadays, people just don't read. They just look at their cell phones and usually they're just doing nonsense stuff, just flipping through pictures or yeah, the, the difference
0: between candy crush and um, meditation on the brain uh, two hours a day for for 10 years is gonna is gonna be quite a quite a dramatic change
1: exactly exactly it's uh it's like any kind it's like physical exercise if you exercise even if it's just half an hour a day it's better than doing nothing
0: mm. Mm. yeah of course I'm, I'm curious, there's a few other impacts that I think we've not uh, fully talked about. Um, and there's, a, there's one particularly that I want to inquire about. Um, oh, there's, there's two that pop up to mind. One is, um, you, you mentioned earlier this idea of the ego. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm curious as to the role of meditation in diminishing egoic thoughts and any any biological signatures that come with that as well?
1: Well, it comes back to Buddhism and uh, it's the non-attachment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, if you stop being attached to the ego, to the stuff, to all the materialistic uh, stuff we have and we desire, you you become much happier. So the self is... Is a good thing. It's uh, it's who we are. But the ego has a negative connotation, and it's a very a stunning difference between the Western world and the Eastern world. Easterners, Asians, cultivate the self, the well-being, the the happiness, and the compassion, and those values. And the Westerners, uh, I mean, it's not all of them, obviously, but typically. No. They in
2: yeah,
1: yeah, but they cultivate the ego and the possessions. it's not who you are, it's what you have and how much money you make and your role in society if you and what you wear, people are so much judged by what they wear it's incredible uh, and,
0: and what's people, the role of mindfulness in shifting in shifting from from you've described the self to the ego, what role does mindfulness play in that?
1: so mindfulness helps you practice non-attachment and just as i said with the thoughts you don't get attached to a certain thought you let it go the same thing with the ego and with the the material things you don't become attached the the more attached you are to something the more you will suffer because the moment you don't have it you will miss it and you will suffer if you don't if if you don't develop those those feelings of attachments and of need and, oh, I need to buy a new phone, I need to buy the latest phone or the, a new car or this kind of stuff, I need to buy new pairs of shoes every year, I need to follow the fashion, I need to buy these shirts and this every year. Why? You don't need that. You, mm-hmm. just, you need to look inside yourself and that's where real happiness is. It's not on the next thing you'll buy it's on the next moment you live fully with with total awareness that's Mm. how happiness can be achieved
0: and what's the neurological signature of that shift from ego to self what does that look like to to a to a uh, non-meditating spiritual cold cold scientist what's the shift there (laughs)
1: Oh, that's that's hard to say. Um, I don't really know how to explain it. Mm.
2: It's,
1: uh, usually we call it decentering when you are not centered on your thoughts, on your, okay. on your emotions, on your problems. When something, someone has a problem, it seems like the worst problem of the world. But it's not. You just have to put it, things into perspective.
0: Mm. So and what's the so there's this term that I've come across the default mode network. Exactly. Uh, so what's what is what is that like? That sounds complicated. The mm-hmm. the D M N. Tell DMN. us a bit more about that. Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, the D M N was found um, during um, a certain kind of um, experiments that are called the resting state experiments resting state is, as the name says, when you're just resting. So you're in the scanner, the functional, the the magnetic resonance imaging scanner, and you're doing nothing, just lying there. And of course, you know, what happens? Your mind starts wondering, you start thinking of what you have to do next, where you have to go. Oh, I have to pay this bill. Oh, I have to go shopping. I need to go for groceries. Your mind starts to Oh, I said something I shouldn't. And why did I say it? Oh, I should not have said that. And now it's going to happen. Your mind starts wondering, and that's uh, when the default mode network kicks in. It's it's a default mode. are just your brain is there in default. It starts generating these thoughts.
0: So this is where our mind is most of the time.
1: Most of the time, exactly. It's mind wandering, and it creates the 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 chatter we we talked about mm-hmm. earlier. All the the noise inside our heads. And what mindfulness allows us is to shift from this default mode network to the attention network. And uh, several studies have been conducted and you see that uh, experienced meditators don't go into that trap of mind wandering. And uh, you see that normal or most people will activate the default mode network whereas meditators will not. Mm. And so uh, mindfulness, because it helps you pay attention, you pay attention to what's happening in your brain. You can understand that the, these unnecessary thoughts, these uh, bad thoughts are coming. They are not helpful at all. So you avoid them and you let them go. And you, it's, there's a striking difference between meditators and non-meditators as, what, as uh, the, the default mode network is concerned.
0: Uh, so, and this idea of a network because before you were talking to us about different parts of the brain we spoke about the amygdala the prefrontal cortex etc what is a network that's not an area of the brain right you can't locate that in one region
1: exactly so the a network is a group of areas that work together to achieve a certain result so the amygdala reacts to fear but it doesn't work by itself. It, it has to connect to other areas to trigger uh, a response. And um, so the other thing that, so I talked about uh, growth of neurons, increased uh, cortical thickness, uh, increased gray matter. The other thing that mindfulness does is, so this is called neurogen- gener- neuro. Genesis, so the generation of new neurons, the birth of new neurons. Uh, Mindfulness also enables synaptogenesis, so the genesis of new synapses. Synapses are the connection between neurons, the connection between brain cells. What it does is, when you have bad synapses, when you have connections between neurons that will help... Uh, feed those ruminating thoughts. The more you feed them, the stronger those connections become. The more you believe a certain thought. So if you stop Mm. thinking like that and you change your perspective, you can grow new synapses that will allow you to rewire your brain. They will allow you to stop thinking like that. So remove those synapses that are not helpful and substitute them by other synapses that are healthier and happier and uh so the connections between different brain areas are changed and then a new network emerges
0: Mm. this so this is what you just described there sounds like a process of unlearning old old things concepts habits in favor of creating new ones is that correct
1: correct yeah that's exactly it
0: and then i'm so the, the This idea of networks has me on to this concept I heard about from, I think, Robert Wright. He has a great book called why Buddhism is true. Uh, he's an evolutionary psychologist and he talks about the modular model of the mind. My, my, my sense is that he's essentially saying that at any given moment, there are different modules, which I think we're calling networks here that are competing for your attention, uh, which is, which is where the Buddhist expression "the thoughts think themselves," so you're not thinking your thoughts; the thoughts are thinking themselves. Um, comes up, is that right? So, is this, is 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 this the idea here that are that there are different networks competing for your attention and for your you to act upon them at any given time?
1: Yeah, yeah, that is right.
0: Because that that notion for me was quite the you know we were talking about the self and the ego when. The idea that thoughts are thinking themselves, that right now there are five things in my mind. I've not, I can't see them all, <laughs> well, unless I'm, medita- mm-hmm. unless I'm very mindful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I'm, and therefore, I often act upon the wrong one. You know, like mm-hmm. I, if, if I were mindful, I would perhaps choose to act on a different thought than the thought that I just act on, given the choice of the, let's say, five modules that are present at any given moment. Is it's that... Am yes. I understanding that correctly?
1: Yes, that's why you have to keep a, an open awareness so that you can observe all those thoughts and then decide upon what you're observing.
0: Because right. if,
1: you, if you cling to one of them, then you cannot see the
0: others. Mm-hmm. Can you describe that, uh, that, that difference between open and closed awareness for listeners, please, Susanna?
1: So for closed awareness, you tend to focus your attention on something um let's say you are observing an object and you focus your attention on the object in order to just quiet your mind in open awareness you are open to anything that comes open to any thoughts it's just you expand your consciousness let's say you're meditating and uh, some construction work noise starts just next door you you just acknowledge it. It's part of the experience. Everything is part of the experience. So you just welcome anything with an open uh, an open mind, and um, you don't try to you don't question anything. You don't try to uh, resist anything. You just maintain an open and curious mind.
0: No. Mm, so in so in that sense. Um you are still not the thinker of your thoughts, but you now have some control over which thoughts you follow or give attention to. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And then um, there's a, I I was saying there was these, these sort of mini confusions that I have. Um, So you're, you're help, you're helping me straighten them um there's one i hope so <laughs> <laughs> um this is fun this is like uh, my my area of, of geekery i really love this stuff so it's nice to speak to to someone who's who's actually scanned brains to talk about it um and i'm thinking there's this difference between suffering and pain yes uh, and i've heard that there's like neurological backing for those because because i think in in common language we talk about suffering and pain as the same thing. Um, but biologically, they're different things, right? Maybe you can talk yep. us through that a little bit.
1: Very different. Pain is unavoidable. Suffering is optional.
0: Mm. And, and what does that look like in the brain?
1: Um, so there are areas of pain, centers of pain in the brain. The, the, it's called nociceptors. They are receptors of pain that they are uh, activated when you feel pain. And of course, if you, if you hammer a finger or if you touch a hot stove, you'll feel pain. It's even, it doesn't even go to your brain. It's, it's subconscious. It's just you feel the pain and you try to remove your, your hand from, from the painful stimulus. Um, pain is unavoidable. Of course, you'll have pain. But suffering is something you can avoid. Suffering is the way you relate to pain. So let's say you break a leg. Of course, it, it hurts. And it will hurt <coughs> a long time. Bless you. <laughs> and, uh, but then the suffering is, uh, is what, you, what you tell yourself. If you tell yourself, oh, oh I'm such a loser. Now I broke my leg. And why didn't I pay attention? And oh, my God. And now I cannot walk. And oh, it's going to be like this for a couple of months. Oh, my life. And this is horrible. And what did I do? This is suffering. You don't need that. I mean, it's enough that you're in pain. You don't need that extra dose of pain. If you accept the fact that you broke your leg, it happens, it's life. Maybe you could have been more careful. That's true, but you weren't. So what? So now you have, you have to live with it. Just accept it. And you are not going to suffer. You're, you'll be in pain, but you are not going to suffer. If you accept it and you say, okay, I broke my leg, I have to wear crutches for a month. It's okay. I will survive. It's not the end of the world. Then you don't. It's just the
0: and, attitude. And is, does suffering have a, an area of the brain associated to it or a network? Whereas pain, pain does, right? There's, there's clear area of the brain. Like if I hit you with the, the hammer, whether you're a monk with 50,000 hours meditation or, <laughs> or someone who uses headspace 10 minutes a day, your Your pain center will react the same, but your suffering area will react differently
1: yeah the suffering part is um, is not well, very well understood yet it's um, for instance in um in f- fibromyalgia that is a generalized feeling of pain um, it's still under debate, what's really going on there? Is it real pain? Because it's very associated with depression. Uh, Mm. Is it real pain or is it the way you interpret pain? The Same thing goes here. I always like to make these parallels, as you see, uh, between pain and suffering. Are you really in that much pain or are you just paying too much attention to it? Mm.
0: Well, because I, I had an experience on a meditation retreat, actually, where, like I said, because you're sitting for so long, for 10 hours a day, that uh, your body starts to feel pain, which mm-hmm. is just understandable. Um, and I have this thing where ever since I was a kid, I've often had cramp in the, in my foot. Mm-hmm. Um, and on this, and, and typically, like, if I, if I... Ask someone to imagine what it's like to have cramp. Everyone, I think, would imagine the same thing, which is your foot starts cramping. You quickly jump up and look after the foot somehow. Um, And I remember during this retreat, I was sitting cross-legged. I had cramp in my foot, and I tried to just observe the sensation of what it is like to to have cramp um, and not react to it. And not only did cramp cramp become a totally um, acceptable form of pain. It actually almost felt enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I had cramp for minutes, so it's not like a, a one-second blip and it's gone. I had it for a while, and it disappeared on its own. And I, I, just, I, re- I just remember it so clearly. It was a moment where I was like, like that expression, shit happens, suffering's optional. Mm-hmm. I really remember not minding having cramp. Whereas, of course, normally I would jump up and like start stretching my hamstrings or something, you know, so, so it really feels like a big shift to, to to unpick pain and suffering as two different things.
1: <laughs> that's that's funny. You, you talk about cramps and um, <laughs> the first time I swam a marathon, um, it was in 2016. And actually I started swimming marathons and ultra marathons after I did the mindfulness courses, which is okay. amazing. It's not by chance. Again, it's not a coincidence. So the so first the mindfulness
0: I, led you to swimming. Uh, yes. What's well, a marathon swimming
1: gave me the, the mental training that I needed to endure such long distance. Uh,
0: right. Okay. And when you say a marathon uh, swim, like yeah. that, that's uh, how, how long is that swim?
1: The same. 10, 10K. It's 10K. 10K. Yeah. yeah. And so the first time I went and swam a marathon, uh, I was with some swim teammates and um, they were not going to swim the marathon. I was the only one who did it at that time. It, just very few people did it. And then there is this girl. Uh, it's, she was the girlfriend of one of my teammates. And she was like, oh, what do you do if uh, you have a cramp during the marathon? And I was thinking, "This is not the nicest thing you, you should yeah. say to someone who is preparing for such a, <laughs> a hard thing, but um, and then her boyfriend was like oh that that's horrible if it happens, you have to stop and and uh and I smiled, and I said, You just have to live with it, and you continue swimming, yeah." so it's exactly the same thing of course you feel pain of course it's it impairs your movement but you recognize it's there and um you let it go
0: mm. yeah yeah you just there's there's that that sensation that this that it's constant change this arrived and it will pass too
1: yeah i've I've had many injuries and uh if you know if every time i have an injury uh, I am depressed and I don't get out of bed. I mean, it's, it's not going to help. Okay. I hurt my shoulder. It's okay to pass. I, can, I cannot swim. I'll go running. It's okay. I can live with it. It's, everything is, is the attitude you have. You need your attitude in life. You just have to welcome everything and accept it.
0: I have a friend who has a real um, his one of his sort of topics of specialism is the psychology behind our relationship with money, and um, this uh, this pain suffering thing has really been helpful for me. Where if I'm uh, I'm I'm far from having really like gathered gathered this. I've got many many hours of meditation to go, but i I've definitely noticed as I've meditated more that. When I have some financial unknowns, uh, instabilities, possibly even like I'm I'm just like lacking money, uh, I'll notice that some feelings are popping up, like anxiety, stress, fear, um, insecurity. And before, I would really go and act on them fast um, and out of a fight or flight mechanism, like the amygdala chose for me to, to... to do something about the money but I'm but I'm picking at least theoretically pain and suffering I uh, am I'm more able to realize at least a bit more of the time that this this is just a feeling like this is not it is not true that I'm in danger necessarily of course like there's a fine line there's a moment where where there's there's some danger but do you, do you see what I mean so I feel like it's it's linkable to not just physical pain such as the cramp you would get on a 16k swim but also to psychological stuff
1: yeah yeah it's it's the way you the way you relate to it the, the importance you give to it and if you get attached to that thought or not
0: mm. so so i think we we've had a a good a good length of chat here i'd love to start landing us uh, in a way that's as valuable as possible to listeners um before before we sort of start wrapping up can you can you just go through is there anything else that you want to cover anything that we've we've not discussed um areas areas of interest for you when it comes to to meditation and neuroscience that that we've we've not covered and, and we should go into
1: i think we've covered pretty much
0: yeah okay so so maybe in that case a good way to do this is to um is to make this a Applicable or applicable for for listeners in a way that can benefit as many people as possible. Um, so, what's some uh, advice you would give to to total non meditators? And yeah, what what's some advice you'd give there?
1: I would um, invite people to pay more attention to what they pay attention to, because attention is like the boss of the brain. Whatever you pay attention to, your brain will follow. Mm. So if you pay attention to bad stuff, you'll have a negative um, attitude, a negative mood. You should start noticing even the smaller things, like the small details. You can take the same way to work every day. It's never the same. If you pay attention to the buildings, the people around you, everything, just... um, Look at each day with a fresh perspective, with a beginner's mind. Beginner's mind is a phrase that is very, very common in mindfulness. You have to have a beginner's mind. Just be like a child. Be curious about everything. And you'll start noticing good things. Because only, as we we mentioned, only the bad things make it to the news make a good novel in your in your head every day pay attention to the good things listen to the birds stop obsessing about negative stuff and just find even if it's just 10 minutes every day just to be alone with your thoughts process your thoughts don't run away from them just listen to yourself listen to your mind it's 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 not much, it's 10 minutes every day. You can do it. And you'll see how much happier you'll become. Don't, don't believe the false narrative in your mind. Uh, accept what happens and um, try, to, try to be more understanding of others, try to be more compassionate, try to be kind. Every day try to do something kind to somebody, even a stranger. Say hello to someone you don't know. Hold the door for someone. Uh, Help an old lady with the shopping. Carry her bags. Do something kind. And you'll see that you'll become much happier because when you give, as I say, when you give, you receive twice as much. So that's the best advice I can give to someone. Just be kind and be compassionate and you'll see how much happier you'll be.
0: And perhaps what, what I find really useful about your advice there, because I don't follow this at all, um, I fall into the trap certainly of feeling like meditation is a thing that I do um, every morning for 45 minutes sitting with my eyes closed. And I forget that uh, I couldn't meditate right now as we speak. I could observe my situation, what I'm seeing, what I'm thinking, what I'm sensing, what I'm smelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are many other moments uh, t- micro moments that I think are valuable that i 'm trying my best to get a bit better at using as moments of mindfulness. One is um, brushing my teeth because mm-hmm. it 's so short uh, you know one or two one or two minutes to just notice what it feels like um, is really useful. The other one is washing the dishes mm-hmm. it 's it's, it's useful to notice I think some some small things like that um, can be can be really valuable um and what do you think of um apps would you do you suggest or not suggest apps like headspace or calm or
1: i think some apps are good they are um, a good way to guide you through the meditation and uh, to keep routine but nothing uh, can substitute a real uh, teacher and a real practice with with a person who is experienced
0: how, how would you go around finding a teacher that's the situation i'm in actually because i um i started with an app years and years ago it got me like you say it got me into a routine it was very small amounts of time which helped and the guiding helped and then as as my practice has deepened um i've stopped using apps other than to have some honest Um, data to tell me whether I actually do meditate every day or not Um, but I but now I feel like I'm at a stage where I'm I would love a regular teacher Mm
2: -hmm.
0: um, to sort of point me and point me towards the things my mind is doing how would you recommend going about that
1: so you have uh, to find someone who is certified and uh, has a lot of practice a lot of experience that's uh, the only way to go
0: What's the what does the certification like if if people were to google this after in order to find a certified teacher what would they google
1: the MBSR certification the mindfulness based stress reduction course
0: mm-hmm. and is that applicable for healthy people as well i ask because MBSR the stress reduction assumes that someone is to some degree ill with cortisol and stress and needs to reduce that um, in my case, that's not that's not the case currently, at least. But I but I still want to my, use mindfulness to optimize my my experience of the world.
1: It's applicable to everyone and at any age, really. Uh, it's it's a, a misconception that only uh, people who are depressed should. Uh, practice meditation or something like that no anyone can benefit as i said it changes our brain for the better even if you're not ill you, your you can improve your brain mm. why not do it you can be healthier and happier even if you're happy you should meditate you'll be even happier
0: mm. yeah agreed you can you can always you can always optimize that uh, a little further
1: Exactly. Everyone wants to be happy. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, oh, I wish I could suffer the whole day and be in pain. Nobody wants that.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: if you, even if you're happy, you, you can be even happier. You can, And you can make other people happier, which is uh, very important. We can mm. have a much better world. As the Dalai Lama said, if we taught every 8 year old how to meditate, we would eliminate the violence from the world within one generation only.
0: Mm. Yeah, that would be a that would be a beautiful thing to see. That's for sure. a
1: powerful statements.
2: <laughs>
0: Agreed. All right. Well, thank you. Is there somewhere people can find you online if they want to speak to you, reach out to you, find out about your work? Where Where should they go?
1: Uh, they can find me on uh, Facebook, mm-hmm. Susana Novais Santos, uh, or they can send me a message, and I'm happy to help. I organize courses whenever I have uh, people interested so I'm always happy to teach and help other people meditate and open their path to happiness
0: that's a wonderful thing to be doing thanks so much for this conversation Susanna it's thank been you great, John for, um, the, the science to the to the spiritual stuff so thank I appreciate thank you so
1: much it's, it's been a pleasure thank you so much
0: Okay. Right. take care you bye. too bye bye yeah bye